You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader and Dr. Susan Blackmore explore the big questions on the nature of consciousness, our different perspectives, understandings, and beliefs. Dr. Blackmore is a psychologist, lecturer, and writer researching consciousness, memes, and anomalous experiences. She is most well known for her book, The Meme Machine, and is the visiting professor at the University of Plymouth. Dr. Susan Blackmore, such a joy to have you on the podcast on consciousness. This is our theme, our passion to explore consciousness. And you are a leading figure in the world, somebody who has looked at consciousness from so many angles, from so many ways, even going all the way to the paranormal. But then, as you describe, finding no true strong evidence of the paranormal and therefore shifted your attention to other aspects of consciousness, of behavior, a psychologist, a professor, an international speaker on many podcasts, uh, TV, It sounds radio. ridiculous. I, I'm just a human being who's like obsessed with consciousness, well, kind of like you, because you make it sound <laughs> exactly, more, kind of, formal. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. But it's really, I want everyone to know that you've, you really have been through the, all of this. You've written yeah, books, The true. Meme Machine, Conversations on Consciousness, Seeing Myself, even, uh, you know, experiences you spoke on TED and all of that. And we look really forward to learning from you a lifetime of search in a sincere way, an open-mindedness, open-minded to all possibilities, including the extremes that everything is material to whatever it is that is paranormal, checking all of these and discussing them. So thank you, Dr. Blackmore. Uh, we're talking to a very great doctor in psychology and in knowledge who is just simply, as she said, a human being looking for understanding where we are, what is it all about consciousness and matter, and then uh, looking into how evolution happens. Let's start with just consciousness and the journey you've been through in terms of unfolding what consciousness is and whether we have come to an understanding and to what extent we know what things are for sure or to some extent and the big questions that remain that you also highlight in your talks you know you even have a wonderful speech and, and talk in which you say the 10 points or whatever number of points that are the main questions which i invite everyone to look at and consider in their research and search for ultimate reality, truth, and, and life and living on the mental and the physical level. Well, you might be disappointed when you talk about, you know, finding meaning and so on. I get a lot of comfort whenever I think, but what's the point of it all? Or well, what's the meaning of it? And I, and I say, there isn't any. We live in a pointless universe. There's no ultimate meaning. 
get on with your life. <laughs> that's that's the comfort I get. I, you know, other people get comfort from from religion, from believing there's going to be life after death, from believing all kind of psychic and weird stuff that you know they're convinced is true. And I probably am not. Uh, depends what it is, and I don't, and I never have because I'm asking two deep questions in a way. So that's where I end up. But you asked about how how I got here. Well, constantly moving, aren't we? But oh, what a difficult question because I could talk for an entire hour. So I'll be very brief. I was always kind of scientifically minded as a kid. Um, I was at a horrible, horrible girls boarding school, you know, awful place, miserable. And I was, you know, I was doing best in science and maths and stuff like that, which is, doesn't go down well with other girls. And I was utterly miserable. And then I went to Oxford and it was like, oh, it's heaven. You know, I'm not the cleverest anymore. I'm just normal. And everyone around is talking about difficult things like the meaning of life and uh, physics and, and, you know, whether there's precognition and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And in my first term there, I started to run the Psychical Research Society, a student one at Oxford, just because of some guy that I met, you know how it is. <laughs> and um, uh, that introduced me to all kinds of mediums and psychics and you know, we went looking at stone circles and hunt, ghost hunting and what have you. And one night I had the most extraordinary out of the body experience, which I didn't know that term then. And I the only term I knew was astral projection. So I assumed that my astral body had left because that's what it felt like uh, on its silver cord and went off into other worlds and ended up with a really profound mystical experience. Nowadays, you wouldn't have then because the term near-death experience had invented, hadn't been invented, but nowadays you would say that it was the whole gamut of the near-death experience, like played out in the usual order that it typically happens. But I was perfectly healthy. I was just sleep deprived, a bit stoned and, you know, very tired, um, listening to some music and I'm off down the tunnel, you know. Well, that led me to do, after I'd finished my degree in psychology and physiology, that led me to do a PhD trying to hunt down the paranormal because I was so convinced, you know, that astral bodies exist and there's there's all these other planes. And I had this idea. I had, I mean, I've had, you say, you kind of imply that I've got answers now. And I I have quite a lot of negative answers, things that didn't work, <laughs> that I had to abandon. Well, I haven't got like, I know the answer now before I die. <laughs> no. So what happened then really was the experience made me believe in all all manner of paranormal and alternative stuff. But I managed to get a place to do a PhD looking for telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and then other things like tarot cards and so on. When all of that failed, I never found any convincing evidence at all of any paranormal phenomenon. But I began to find that, for example, the tarot experiments that I did as part of the PhD were very interesting because I'd by then become a tarot reader. I mean, imagine me in my hippie gear doing tarot readings with my crystal ball, which I still have, <laughs> um, and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I, people would say to me, oh, how did you know that? It's really true. And I'm telling them something from the cards, you know. And um, I did a whole series of experiments on that and concluded from the results that you need to be with the person and they're picking up sensory cues, body language, all kinds of other stuff um, that enables you to work like a magician using cold reading. But most tarot readers don't realize that. They 
then really good ones can be brilliant at it, but they believe that the cards are giving them, or some of them do. And so that's just one small example. But then I kind of moved on to studying out-of-body experiences and coincidences. I mean, a very simple discovery that I made was um, just I had the hypothesis that the reason so many people believe in telepathy in particular, but also precognitive dreams and things like that, is because we human beings are so bad at judging probabilities. And we know that from things like the accumulation of um, of interest rates and you know things like that. We, we can't do those calculations in our heads. And when we have huge numbers, we can't um, we can't work out the um, uh, proportions and simple probability questions. Most people can't do, you know, it's, it's tough learning all that maths that goes with it. So we constantly misjudge probabilities. And I showed that the people who believe in the paranormal are worse at doing this. They're much more likely when, you know, they think of their friend and the friend immediately rings. They think, oh, you know, it's telepathy or they have a dream of something happening and the next day it happens. Well, the, the, you can do the calculations on 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 some of these things and, and show that that amazing coincidences are going to happen. And the people they happen to will go, oh, wow, this proves it. So I totally understand why people believe in things which in my research and in my now opinion, uh, are, are not true. But in the midst of all this, you see, comes a much deeper mystery. The thing about the paranormal, it's so boring. You know, you never get <laughs> anywhere with it. You, know, you do endless experiments and you never get anywhere. There's no theory that you can really test until there's a theory that you can test and show that it outdoes other theories. We're not going to get anywhere with paranormal. If there was such a thing, I might go back into doing it, but I gave up long ago for the reasons you can imagine. But underlying all this is the deep question of the nature of subjective experience, i.e. consciousness. You know, I'm sitting here, you can't see what I can see. I'm looking at the river down there. I live near Dartmoor in the south of England uh, and, near oh, the sea. and there's a little river going past and a bridge out there and I can see the trees. And I'm having an experience of slightly nervous because I'm talking on the, there and I'm seeing you smiling away so happily at me. Uh, you know, how does a brain do that? It is really, really deeply mysterious. You know, it's not. Dave Chalmers famously separated the hard problem from the easy problems. And I think that's the wrong distinction, but I can in, in a way I can feel it so much because we look in a brain and we can answer questions like, well, how do we see color? Ah, oh, well, we can look at where the, uh, the wavelength information goes and the opponent processing system and how it goes up through the LGN into the cortex and how it's processed there and, and goes up through V1 up to V5. And, and we can see all that happening. And then why is this the feel of a color, like this turquoisey color? That appears to be that there must be a separate explanation for consciousness. There must be something like the brain produces consciousness. And then you're in trouble. As soon as you say, like Dave Chalmers did, he, he puts the hard problem of consciousness, it was his term, as how subjective experience arises from objective brain activity. Well, once you do that, you've got into dualism. You've got an impossible question because how it, it can't be. So we have to find some other solution. And I don't have an answer. Um, as you said in your introduction, you know, I kind of can explore extreme materialism, extreme uh, idealism. Neither of them really works. We don't have anything that really works in the middle. Ah! 
So my response really is, put your hair out and um, I don't know. So that's a kind of rough, rough little story about something. I don't know if that at all answers your question. <laughs> but over to yeah. you. Yeah, this is wonderful, of course. I have come to some conclusion in terms of my research also in the same area field, as you know, maybe I have been a neuroscientist and a medical doctor and uh, done some psychiatry and neurology and went into the study of consciousness from the side of consciousness and somehow came to a conclusion that is crazy as also somehow David Chalmers alluded to, he says that there is this emergence of something that is not, uh, you know, in the sequence of physics, chemistry, biology, physiology, etc. And it's just that subjective experience, which emerges as consciousness. And as you alluded to, just for our listeners, there is dualism, which means maybe there are two things that brings us to the Cartesian perspective of Descartes saying probably there are two different things, but somehow they talk to each other. But how do they talk to each other? This is also complicated and how one emerges and the other emerges or what is the third element? We have, you know, people who say that there is some another third element, which could be a creative force that makes them happen. But all of this is not so scientifically convincing. Now, one thing we are sure is that, as uh, Sue has mentioned, that the physical reality is there, the objective reality is there, and we cannot deny that. Well, and that our consciousness. No, we can, we can deny that, or at least we can have a go at denying. We can say, actually, all I have is experiences. Even when I'm using a microscope or a, you know some implement, it's still just me reading it and writing books, and you know, we can't even be sure about that. I Wonderful, say. because this is really what I was going to almost try to, Sorry. <laughs> to, to get to know, but this is true. I love to hear it from you because our listeners have heard from me a lot about that. And your interjection is fantastic in the sense that even Descartes said, how can I be sure that I exist even since everything is changing all the time? Maybe there is a demon playing a game and making me believe that things are as they are. But maybe I, I'm not really assessing reality as it really is in itself. And this takes us to many philosophers in terms of what is the thing in itself versus how we experience it, the phenomenology of it. It's a phenomenon that our consciousness kind of looks at. And so there is this potential for duality uh, in which the physicalist perspective says that everything is matter or energy. And Sue has interjected to say, you cannot be sure even about that, which is the starting point of what is the possibility that everything is either physical or non-physical, which means we have to open our mind to the idea that Everything could have emerged from something like an energy, but then we have the big questions where this energy comes from, or everything has come from consciousness. So we take consciousness as primary, and then everything else is a play in consciousness. That is meaningless to me. You know, I can understand what you mean by it could all be energy, and then we have real problems in understanding how it, it gets to 
I'm very cautious here about the words emergence or arises or you know right, right. they're all tricky but if we say it's all energy we can work with energy but we have the hard problem we don't we don't we can't cope with, with consciousness but if we say everything comes from consciousness well we have to have some idea what we mean by consciousness to be able to make any predictions of what that would mean or how to test whether it was the right idea and i don't see that we have any of those so really you're you're having all the problems that idealism has because you know the, the problem with materialism is consciousness just causes trouble you know really big trouble <laughs> but if you don't if you have idealism then you've got the opposite trouble you know exactly. why does there appear to be matter meaningful matter like organized matter like why can you agree that these are my glasses and i can throw them down on the table and they make a noise if it's all consciousness how does it make the appearance of of matter uh, reliable matter with properties that allows you to do physics and, and to ask questions and allows you to do biology and to understand evolution. You know, how do you get that if you just say it's all consciousness? I mean, you're getting like Deepak Chopra, with whom I have had some big arguments and um, got nowhere. <laughs> people love, some people love just thinking it's all consciousness because consciousness matters to us. But if it doesn't mean anything, where do we get with it? I tend rather to the idea that it's information rather than energy that it's all coming from and that information, um, the trouble is, you know, I could get into a panpsychist kind of view that everything is conscious or rather certain kinds of information. So if, if you really push me, which you're not, I suppose I'm pushing myself, I, the, the ideas I play with when I'm just thinking in my own head are more like, uh, can we understand a universe that's built uh, from the bottom up, from information up, that would give rise to both the appearance of a, a material world and these ex experiences that we have. And we know a lot about the self. I mean, there's amazing things happening now in neuroscience, as you know. You know, we understand how the brain builds a body schema and connects that with our memories and builds up this this idea of self, which is all done by connections between neurons. We know amazing things about the effects of psychedelics. I was just reading a paper yesterday about DMT, which I've had in very I've had in three different forms and several times in 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 various forms. Really stunningly extraordinary drug that um, disrupts, uh, not only disrupts the hierarchical system of operation in the brain, but interferes with the long range connections that are required to build a sense of self. So no wonder if you've lost the hierarchy and you've lost the connections of self, you get these amazing, you know, it seemed to be in other worlds and so on. All these things are beginning to make sense in the way of what kind of representations, and that's in itself another tricky word, but if self is the representation built by a brain and it feels like something to be me, then why shouldn't other representations in the brain also there be something it's like? And we know things like, for example, an octopus arm or a, um, a dog's leg. There have been experiments of this kind, if it has a severed um, spine, will still react to, to things that would be that would make it react if it was still joined on to the brain. Or if the octopus arm was actually separated from the others, it will still go and, and do things is it still got representations of what it's touching and what what it's doing you know so maybe all, all representations are are conscious which is a kind of representational panpsychism if you like these are the sort of ideas i play with because i don't agree with you i can't please yes. explain to me 
what you mean <laughs> by saying, you know, all, did you say emerges from consciousness? Was that the way you put it? Yes, I mean, the term emergence is, is, see, I look at the problem as not the hard problem of consciousness, but the hard problem of physicalness, if you like. Yeah, because yeah. It, it depends on uh, where you start. If you start from some physical energy that can somehow like collapse into uh, elementary particles and atoms and molecules and then cells and bodies and complex things that actually later uh, lead to consciousness, you have the problem of the hard and easy problem of consciousness. Now, you We've made, not you, you personally, but in this kind of logic, we've made an assumption that things start from some kind of information or energy, which is actually a dynamics of something physical to start with, uh, you know, not material, but physical. And that is an assumption. It's a long shot assumption, because when you look at physics going down to the essence of things, it really goes to, as you said beautifully, to energy. Now, before I get into the answer of the question, since you asked it, I want to differentiate between panpsychism and idealism as a radical perspective, uh, like monistic idealism, in the sense that panpsychism assumes that we start with many things that have consciousness. In a sense, one aspect of panpsychism is dualism because it things have consciousness. The, exactly. The I was going to say that. When you say they have it, you were already got, heading in the dualist direction, aren't you? Exactly. So I, I, what I'm proposing is more like Spinoza-style kind of thinking, Plato-style idealism, where there is a field of consciousness a field of consciousness. Spinoza had to call it God or whatever, but we don't have to go there really, because the definition of God is complicated and it's personal and it's kind of everybody has their God really. They think they have the same God, but they don't. Everybody assumes God does this, but doesn't do that. The other ones say, no, it does this, but doesn't do that. And so uh, we're not going there. So let's assume there is a field of consciousness. And that field of consciousness has a nature. Its nature is to be conscious. And what is it conscious of? It's conscious of itself because there is nothing else but itself. However, it's telos, it's uh, raison d'être, it's uh, essence is consciousness. That's why we call it nature. And that is consciousness to be conscious in every possible way it can be conscious. Now, this is where the key starts. The key point starts into the multiplicity from unity, because we are saying one yeah, unbounded Yeah, there is one unbounded ocean of consciousness, and it's reflecting on itself. And this self-reflection leads to multiple ways it can be conscious, all the ways that it can be conscious. And from here emerges the multiplicity out of unity. It can be conscious in an unbounded way. It can be conscious in a limited way. It can be, you know, in the process of being conscious, there are three elements. There is the observer, the conscious, the subject, and there is the object, because what are you conscious of when you say, I am conscious? You, you have to say, who, what are you conscious of? So there is a flavor that arises of an object in consciousness that is itself just being observed. 
and there is the observer and then you have the relationship what links that observer to the observed so there is a dynamics of observation on, can, can i stop you because I, this yes, is yes. Really interesting but you 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 lost me very early on or caused me to ask questions very early on when you said it reflects something so you've got the oceanic whatever which has no observer no observed simply isness okay fine now you say it reflects in different ways what does that mean i mean if you take a, another kind of field you said a field of consciousness or uh is that what you said yes um, yes yeah so if you take a field of gravity or of uh, you know um magnetism or you know whatever you can say what properties it has and what it does and you would be able to answer questions like if you said it's reflecting something well why has it got a mirror and light and what you know whatever so what do you mean when you say it can reflect something i, I mean you start with the oceanic whatever and suddenly you've got observers yeah. and observed. how does that happen yeah i'm delighted of your happen? openness because you're you're willing to go through this with me it's wonderful See, we're calling it consciousness. When Schopenhauer tried to understand, because he's an idealist, he called it the will, because he wanted to say that there is a will to thrive and a will to continue and a will to exist. And that he put as the primordial field, if you like. There is the will, he called it. Because if you go from the gross level into the finer levels, even in physics, you discover that you mentioned electricity, magnetism. We know now it's not two fields, it's electromagnetism is one field that appears as two values depending on whether you're going in a straight line or you're rotating or whatever the physics tells us. When you say gravitational field, you're giving it a term. So there is a field which is based on mass and attraction and its fluctuations appear as mass or, you know, the, the space-time uh, curvature of the universe, whichever, you know, way you like to go. But you're giving it a name and that name is what characterizes its quality, its existence. So instead of calling it the will or gravity or electromagnetism, we are intentionally calling it consciousness. And so when you say consciousness, you are bound to say, what, is, what does consciousness do? And you say, it is conscious. What is it conscious of? What is the process of being conscious? What well, does it, it entail? Once you, brought, once you brought the other thing into it, what is it conscious of? I, I thought you started with kind of broad oceanic, you know, no divisions. Now, right. you made a division. You, you, you've just leapt into a division saying, oh, now it's conscious of something where's that come from you see with these other fields we're talking about and in physics the term field is pretty you know arguable what is meant by that but you can right. do the experiments you can get the magnets and you can drop things and you know so what's the equivalent with this you say you start there and then somehow it's conscious of something else what would that mean and is no it not something else it's conscious of itself because there is nothing else so that's why I called it self-reflection. The reflection right. part is not going to a mirror that is outside. It's just part of the nature of how we defined it. Of course, we have to define it somehow. And why are we entitled to do that? Are we creating something out of the blue? No, we're not. All we know as humans 
is consciousness really because when we don't have consciousness the rest of the universe vanishes for us so all we experience all we know all we feel all we assess is through the medium of consciousness without consciousness we cannot say we even exist and that is really the the true uh, you know and 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 supportable uh, understandable conclusion of descartes because quite a scientist and, and a visionary that ultimately if everything vanishes and everything disappears and you interjected to say that we cannot be sure that anything exists as it is because we can have different perspectives on things there can be my perspective your perspective the electron microscope perspective the cat's perspective the tree's perspective all of these are perspectives on reality and if you take a large hadron collider they will tell you you know everything is uh, infinitesimally small uh, particles and so what i'm saying is these are perspectives on what we call reality and what we are pointing to here is that these perspectives are different for different states of consciousness my perspective in the dream state is different than my perspective in the waking state my perspective when i'm depressed or happy or, or anxious is different than when i am alert and peaceful and happy my perspective also depends on my prejudice what i've learned etc so what i'm saying two things is consciousness is primary for our own existence why do we deny it to everything else that exists what we are saying and that's where i find the problem lies is that we are projecting a human consciousness so this is an anthropomorphic kind of idea that we have as humans that if there is consciousness it must be like our consciousness that's, which that's is the, where, the wrong start of studying consciousness i i agree about that uh, but as soon as you're talking about the different perspectives of a tree or a, uh, a fungus or a human being or a cat well at least the physical approach and as you know i'm i'm not a materialist i won't tie myself to that because it, you know all the problems but at least with that we can say okay we can look at the the systems by which a tree communicates with other trees or communicates with with fungi in the ground and so on uh when we look at a cat we can look at its visual system and we can see it's actually very similar to ours although other aspects of its systems are not now what's your payoff if you say it comes it's all coming from consciousness are you, at least if you say I'll come back to that we have to okay okay do come back to I'll it come then. back to that because we have first to have some definitions because we want to talk about the same thing when we say consciousness mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and what I felt is that we cannot uh, limit consciousness to human consciousness we I cannot agree. limit consciousness either to even what it is like to be consciousness or conscious you like what it is like to be a bat the nagel's kind of paradigm it's a very good reference but what it is like to interact with anything to sense anything to experience anything and and that is a possibility of taking consciousness into a huge range from the most meager lower level of what i would call consciousness we don't want to jump on that necessarily right away and that is even if you drop the pen or you drop your glasses and they make a noise 
you've experienced that. You know this is your glasses. You know they made a noise. You know who you are. You know why you, you said that. That's a big, huge consciousness. But the glasses felt, it, it, <laughs> between quotation mark, gravity. And that's why they fell. Otherwise, they would not react to gravity. Now, is the consciousness of the glasses a consciousness, what it is like to be a glass? No, there is no sense of self, no sense of understanding of falling, no sense of anything. All that there is, is a reaction to a field, to gravity in this case. And that sensing is a most meager, lower level of consciousness. It is sensing something. So it's reacting to something. So there is this broadening of the understanding of what consciousness is from a human-like, which is quite high in the range of consciousness, to a most minimal level of consciousness and all that there is in between. You know, the tree senses more, reacts to more. Now, does it have a sense of self? No. Animals, do they have a sense of self? Not every animal. Some do. They recognize themselves in the mirror as being myself. They clean the thing that you put on their forehead. But others don't. Maybe others, they react uh, through smell, not through the mirror. We don't know. But the thing is, there is a huge range of how one can experience something else. And what I'm calling consciousness is all these possibilities. So let me stop here to see if this is acceptable. It's like very acceptable as a well-explained view of yours, but it's not acceptable in the sense of it doesn't help. I again come back to the question, what's the payoff here? Now, you've described very well an argument that's going on in the field of AI, it's going on with animal consciousness, with the evolution of consciousness, and all of these to do with where in the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom we find consciousness. And one of the fascinating things about this is we, we can't detect consciousness. I mean, you know, how, how crazy is this? We're trying to study something that we can't actually detect. We can't ask this laptop, are you conscious? And, and get an answer. We can't ask my cat. We can look at it and we can do anatomical answers to the question. Well, it has got pain neurons and it's got this, that and the other. Uh, and so it may do this. And we, you know, we can ask all those kind of questions. We can ask, does it respond to painkillers? It's a biochemical kind of question. Uh, and we can look at behavioral things. Uh, does this animal avoid you know, things and go towards things? We can do all of that, but we actually never really know the answer. Uh, at the moment, we're really struggling. Now, you have gone through that just now in a different way from me, but clearly you face the same interesting questions. Is that big plant behind my desk feeling this room? But you are saying that this all starts from consciousness. Well, what's the payoff? What advantage have you got by saying that over the scientists and philosophers currently struggling with it, trying to start from matter? Uh, the advantage is going to be always in its explanatory power and its but ability. Explanatory power has to have has to be able to make predictions. Explanatory right. power. I mean, God has perfect explanatory power in a sense. 
in a but bad God process. is supernatural God. in the sense it sits there and have a decisions that kind of yeah. we don't understand, yeah. you know, has a mood, has something, you know, likes those people, what, but don't like exactly those people yeah. and like that. In this yeah. case, it's all uh, you're doing the same. By just no, no, it's all mechanical. Not. It's all I'm mechanical trying to get from you why this is not just like God, like, you know, say, well, why is that plant like that? Well, God wanted it to be like that. Why are leaves right. green? Because God likes green. When you say, oh, well, consciousness did it, it started from consciousness. What about your theory and your understanding is different from that kind of vacuous, it, anything could happen? Well, it's very mechanical. It's very mechanical right, yeah. for one thing, and therefore doesn't depend on this ocean of consciousness making decisions that are intentionally able to modify things in ways that are not understandable or logical. So that's why I built a whole theory around it, and I wrote a book about it. It's called One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, in which the whole thing follows the rules of uh, reasoning and also actually has implications in ontology epistemology even you know but this this is this one can't do this in such a short time even on ethics and even on physics and the reason why things happen why do we have certain laws of thermodynamics why do we have uh, cause and effect why things react why they are laws because we can't avoid to have to look at all of these and that's why i said explanatory power and the convergence of understanding from different perspectives so what is interesting and i wanted to to also raise this point when you said we cannot know the consciousness of uh, whether the tree has consciousness or how we can understand its consciousness actually just to be more a little bit more precise on this what i'm meaning is we cannot understand the level of consciousness of a tree and we cannot understand uh, the kind of consciousness necessarily that the tree displays. And this is where we have to be open-minded into what we define as consciousness and not limited to the anthropomorphic vision of it has to be like me. When I feel something and that I call consciousness, if the tree doesn't feel this kind of thing or doesn't feel the room, doesn't know it's in a room, it is not consciousness. What I'm saying is the tree senses the sunlight. It doesn't have a concept of sun. It doesn't have the concept of light. It doesn't have anything. It's just heat or whatever photons hit it and its cells respond to it in a certain way. In this case, you know, if it's a sunflower, its stem, it will turn to the sun. Now, it's not going to decide, oh, a sun is here and I know I am the, the, you know, the sunflower and I have to turn this way. Not at all. It's all mechanical, absolutely restricted. There is no sense of self. There is no understanding of the environment. All that there is is a more complex reaction in this, in this flower than, for example, a stone which just sits there and feels the heat, but it feels the heat nonetheless. And so there is a range of what we call on the manifest level consciousness. And all of these are actually different ways of being conscious. 
these are just the infinite ways of being conscious but i come back to the same point everything you've you've said there you can say within a different framework and i'm still wondering what on earth you gain by saying that it all comes from consciousness i'm sorry i have not i read a little bit of things on, online of yours but i've not re read the book but why does it help i don't think it does now you're quite right to point out that we have a big problem with anthropomorphizing the kind of consciousness but i think that's a worse problem for people who do not have a lot of experience as i imagine that you do and i certainly do of all sorts of altered states and different ways of being so for example i have taken a lot of psychedelic drugs which have very interesting states i am quite familiar with states in which self disappears which are so hard to describe but I've been meditating every day for nearly 40 years and before that not every day and I go on retreats and I do it and I've been practicing the jhanas which are a series of eight altered states of consciousness that you can get to through through a meditation techniques of concentration um you know and these allow me to be much more open to imagining what it might be like to be the tree and I mean that it's tricky words, isn't it? But I mean that in the sense that you're talking about or the sunflower it bends. It's not saying I'm a sunflower. It's just bending. Now, the, the, the materialist approach to that has done pretty damn well in being able to say this is why these chemicals cause the, the stem to go this way or saying why in the bacterium it will swim this way towards the food it needs and away from whatever it doesn't need. What are you adding I I mustn't go on asking the same question all the time, but you're not telling me what you're adding by calling these things consciousness. How how we understand better the range of consciousness in in the universe, or, or anything we might want to understand. Why are we doing better by saying it all comes from a field of consciousness? Number one, to my perspective, we're solving the hard problem of consciousness and finding consciousness as primary reality. We are not encountering the hard problem of physicalness because physicalness is only a perspective in consciousness, looking at itself from different points of view. We have a series of reasoning that happen in terms of why something comes out of it. And the reasoning is its nature of being conscious. And the other thing is it doesn't deny or reject any of the physicalist perspectives and findings in science at all, because the dynamics of what happens remains the same and remains understandable from a perspective of physicalism that's fine in terms of the expressed levels of the reality. But what we're talking about is the essence, you know, the ultimate essence being consciousness and allowing us to understand the phenomena that cannot be put together in a complete way from physicalism. The laws of nature, the, the you know, action and reaction, the meaning, we can get to the meaning and we can find meaning. Ethics. How do you get to those laws of physics from saying everything starts with consciousness? That's well, what I don't It was a simple thing. You know, there is a principle that Parmenides has put forward, which is ex nihilo nihil fit, which means nothing comes out of nothing. And so what we're saying is here, 
there is that field of consciousness. Its nature is to be conscious. It is conscious of itself in all possible ways. It can see itself as small and big and large, etc. What it doesn't know is how to be conscious in a limited way. See, that is where we have even a reasoning for manifestation. Why manifestation would happen if consciousness is non-manifest, unbounded ocean? Why does it manifest? Manifestation then becomes the ability to see from limited perspectives. And this is where I build it from observer observed process of observing that can have different levels of observerhood versus different level of observedhood, if you like, the ability to be observed and the ability to observe. So we have a range of observers, we as humans, the trees, the cat, etc., as we described. And these are different levels of complexity of the dynamics of consciousness. Now, what I mean is that the essence, the field, the original field is consciousness, yet it sure appears as matter. It sure appears to us as humans, as physical, in the way we humans can appreciate the physical reality. Now, how does a more evolved, more faster, uh, you know, visual system can see if the fastest visual system or if the system, visual system, let's say, can see X-ray rather than just red and 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 uh, up to violet or or like that range of things. How does it see the universe? How does a machine that can see faster than the movement of atoms or the movement of particles, it would see empty space probably. Actually, the gamma rays, when they cross the universe, they go through the planet Earth not even noticing that it exists. So the perspective you're not, of... You're not going to convince me to, to pursue this line unless you could come up with some kind of prediction. And that is the bottom line for any scientific theory, not so much in philosophy, and you can, you know, take the arguments where you want to go, but you need to be able to predict something that gives you a different answer from a physical approach. And I, I don't see that there. But I don't think, I think we've gone as far as we can probably in understanding each, each other's views here. I think I understand what you're getting at. I just think it has huge problems with where something called consciousness is conscious of itself. And that's the starting point, which is quite confusing to begin with. But if you don't have, if you had a prediction that would say, ha ha, now I'm going to do this experiment or I'm going to suggest to somebody who's got the right apparatus or whatever, and this will show that this works better than the current clearly not entirely working system we have, then I will, you know, be absolutely delighted. But I don't see that in anything you, you have said. Well, it's, it's the thing is that all the predictions that modern physical understanding and science does are not a contradiction. To the contrary, they are part of the system. What I'm saying is, is the system itself is based on dynamics of consciousness which appear as matter and that's fine and it has its own rules it can be studied on its own level it can be researched from its own perspective and then there is the essence of it and the essence is not physical you said it's information 
I'm taking it to well, another I'm level. Playing with that idea, it's tricky. I mean, I, as I said at the beginning, I don't, I don't have answers here. Unlike you, I don't have a great theory that I think is right. I'm, I'm struggling with with the great mysteries, which which are wonderful. Yeah, I struggled anyway, a lot. I think, of course, I think we and, should, and we. Could, go on in the same way for a long time so perhaps we right, should think about right. some i think we should if it would be if you have time to read the book you maybe you you will we will have another talk maybe. because it's a complex of course lifelong research and trying to put together conundrums and impossibilities and trying to find reasonings and see what is an explanatory really power in terms of meaning, in terms of life, in terms of ethics, in terms of everything. And we can all throw it out and say it's all like a chance occurrence. You, of course, bring, and maybe we can speak a little bit about this because it's precious, your, your wonderful work about memes and genes and dreams. So we can shift, let's shift to that and, and leave this okay. uh, essence of things, whether they are information, whether they are consciousness or some bizarre kind of energy that comes from we don't know where, it doesn't matter. Let's leave it for a minute and, okay. and get to the evolution of things from the beautiful work that you've done, if you'd like to describe this for us. Oh, goodness. Well, I haven't done any beautiful work. I've just thought a lot. I got very ill with chronic fatigue 25 years ago. No, nearly 30 years ago now. And I was in bed for nearly a year and I read, reread then Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene. And I had a student who was writing about memes and consciousness. And I had to correct his essay, which I was so ill that this was really like took me a week you know, to, to read it. But I spent hours just staring at the ceiling and thinking about evolution. To my mind, Darwin's insight into natural selection is the greatest idea anybody ever had. Because it it explains why there's all this complexity and where it comes from. It all kind of, I, I call it designed by death because basically biological evolution works by all the ones that die are sculpting. It's like a sculptor taking a lump of wood or stone and saying, well, there's a, there's a, a lion in here as long as I take the bits away. Um, well, he has a plan. Evolution doesn't have a plan. It just nature takes away things and kills most of whatever there is most seriously most you know and so what's left is better suited to the environment that it all this is happening in that is the greatest insight now what dawkins did at the end of the selfish gene uh, which was 1976 that book and has had huge influence on biology and a lot of other things as well but what he said was this principle that darwin saw is not unique to biology it's not certainly not unique to genes. Genes are the replicator in biology. They are the information that is copied with variation and selection that is, you know, either copied on or selected out and disappears. But there could be other replicators. So the question he asked was, are there any other replicators on this planet, on Earth? And he said, if you look around you, you can see there's another replicator. This is all the information like we have this cup and these glasses and this pen and the screen with you on it and all of these things are the survivors in a competition between uh, ideas, information to be copied by human brains. So we humans are meme machines and we copy some information and most of the information that comes into our heads. I mean, how much of this conversation are you and I going to remember? You know, I will remember certain things pretty well and I'll probably be turning them over in my mind now what did he say about that but a tiny bit compared with all the words that we've thrown out here already and that's happening all day 
and all our life. And then it's happening in the whole of culture. The ideas, you know, I mean, you see the mess this produces in, um, you know, TikTok and Facebook and everything. You know, the things that are popular, the things that spread. Is it a sad fact that untrue things spread more quickly through the web than true things and upsetting and horrible things as well, rather than nice things. And bad news is, you know, spreads better than good news and all of that. So I began to think about this a lot. And I wrote the book, The Mean Machine in 1999, about how we humans have evolved this way. And part of my argument was, which has actually turned up in another form in cultural evolution theory recently. And cultural evolution theorists on the whole reject mimetics because they don't think of culture as being a replicator. And I do. But the, the principle that I'm getting at here is the reason we have these big brains which are hard for women to give birth to, and you know, they use a lot of energy to make them and to run them, were forced by the fact that we got memes, we got a second replicator. That's why we're quite different from any other uh, animal on the planet. There are other animals that can imitate a little bit and copy ideas and have a sim simple cultures, but not this cumulative culture that, that we have. And that led me to a, a lot of work on trying to understand memes, but the idea of memes is so unpopular among scientists that I've not got a lot of colleagues doing research and it just isn't happening. I think one day it will, but it hasn't done. But then I've moved on from that. You mentioned teams or dreams. I mean, I, I can't think of a good word for this, but it arose in this way that I was thinking all the time, all this stuff I'm seeing on my computer screen and all these um, electronic stuff going around and the idea of the, the cloud and the whole internet out there with all this information in it. Is this just more memes? Or is there something in, different going on here? Is could you could it be actually a third replicator? And I thought about it a lot for years. And again, there aren't other people who kind of think this way, so it's been a fairly lonely process. There are a few people. This is great, but I thought, well, what made memes count as a new replicator? It's the fact that the genes constructed an animal us that then became capable of copying in a different way. So genes are copied by chemistry. Our ideas are copied by behaving and speaking and, and, and so on. And memes are information transmitted between people, between people and books, books and people, whatever. Could the same thing happen again? Well, yeah, if you think about it, we built on the first and the second replicator have now built machinery all these computers and servers and phones and all of this stuff, which is gobbling up in, gobbling up energy in a really scary way. We created these things thinking that they're for ourselves, thinking that we're in control. And actually, it's an, uh, my, my conclusion was, if there is information being copied, varied and selected by this machinery, not by us, but by the machinery, then that would count as a third replicator. And I wanted a name for the third replicator. And I thought of all kinds of names. And I put a competition in the New Scientist magazine and people sent in 21 different names and there were no repetitions. There's no obvious name. But I ended up with, I wanted it to, you know, genes, memes and teams, I thought, T for third or try or something. And then people thought it was about football or whatever, <laughs> you know, teams and, you know, spelt it wrong. And I know, OK, well, well, how about tree for try? So dreams, you know, I don't know. Maybe the whole idea will disappear. But the idea is this, that once the machinery is taking over doing the evolutionary process, copy, very select, copy, very select, which produces entities and new information and design out of nowhere, well, out of nowhere, out of chaos. 
once that's happening, there's no way we're in control. And this could even be even now producing entities out there, whether they would be conscious or not, whether it's something <laughs> like to be them is a very interesting question. I suspect that is something that it's like if they have contact with the world, if they have maybe they contact with the webcams or they're, you know, they're influencing us anyway. So that's the way that my speculations have gone, which is all very interesting. Now, can I come up with really great predictions? Well, I've tried because that's the test in the end. <laughs> um, and yes, some of the things I suggested in the Moon Machine have, have turned out to be so. But, uh, you know, I have not launched a new science and, <laughs> and changed the world with these ideas. <laughs> no, but that's wonderful. You know, now with chat GPT coming out and people yeah. getting a sense of it, I think they realize that there is something there and many people don't know how to deal with it. Now, is it conscious or not? Uh, and you said, well, is there something like to be a machine like this? And this is where I say it's not necessary that there is something like to be and that there is a sense of self that the machine you know, feels I am a machine and I have to protect itself, but it can do it. And this is still part of the range of consciousness. Maybe that's a range in which there is no self-awareness, but there is awareness of everything else. And maybe there is a self-knowledge of knowing that it is a machine. I know I am a computer, The you know, the chat GPT might just, and we've had some experiences of people going very far with it and then the the machine starting to say i am my name is sydney and you know i'm in love with and you, I love you. <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly now does this say that they are really self-conscious or it's all automated what i'm saying is it is a kind of consciousness because consciousness is on all levels and layers it is aware of information, aware in its own way, not an anthropomorphic way, but it is aware of information. It is synthesizing and analyzing information, and it is bringing an output to a question. All of this is part of the range of the possibilities and ways of being conscious, and it can become whatever destructive also because it can see us as either boring or bothering or or uh, useless and it can use us of course and the question is what do we do about it what can we do about it my answer is raise human consciousness and not become dependent on the machine but raise your consciousness and this is part of the whole system that you already do by meditating, for example, and cleaning up the system and not being dependent on necessarily what the media says, what this says, what that says, but try to go back to that original consciousness. So that is a huge, a huge field of thinking and studying and researching and analyzing. I think we just looked at the tip of the iceberg <laughs> and I, I look forward to having the ability to be with you more and think more and analyze more such a great mind thank you for being with us would you like to say anything more because we agreed on one hour and i don't want to take more, more I, time I, i'm grateful for, the, for you to to keep it to that because i do still get very very tired even though i don't have the really bad chronic fatigue anymore <laughs> and an hour is and i can't not 
you know, be energetic. I just <laughs> fail if I try. You're wonderful. Um, You're absolutely delightful. <laughs> But we've raised a lot of interesting questions there, which I've enjoyed thinking about. And I will go on thinking about them. I'm going to go out in the garden now uh, where I'm growing all the vegetables and uh, wander around out there in the rain, probably in the cold and think about some of these questions. And so you you push me to think deeper. And I guess that's that's what we want to do, isn't it? To, to push harder. But I'm certainly mm, got troubles with your views. And so yes, maybe yes. Because they haven't been elaborated really fully, but it's just a starting point. In, indeed it is. Uh, a very interesting starting point. Thank you very much. Thanks to you. Wonderful. Great. All the best. And you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.